Hi, my name is Barb Olson, and I'm going to be reading today from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers of this dark world, and against the evil spirits of the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you are able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Barb. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Alex and team, thank you uh, for leading us in this time of worship, declaring who God is and reminding us of that. Um, God is doing something this morning. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we are engaged in a conversation right now over these past couple weeks about how the enemy works. We are exposing the lies and the strongholds that he has in our lives. And we are coming to Jesus with those places and he is offering healing and he is offering freedom. And so many of you in this room, just as strongly as you have felt the lie and the doubt and the division, you are beginning to feel freedom. God is doing something. He has something for each and every one of us today that he's inviting us into. And so through our worship, declaring the truth of God and through the word, hearing the truth of God back and leading us into what he has in store for us, we are seeing lives change. And so we are looking forward to continuing our conversation about what does it look like for us to move into the future that God has for each and every one of us and for all of us as the Hope Collective. Uh, my name is Alex. I am one of the pastors here at the Hope Collective. And for those of you that are just joining us, uh, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Insomnia. And uh, we're asking the question, what keeps you up at night? Is it your pain in this world or is it your purpose in the kingdom of God. And we've been spending these past couple of weeks exposing the fact that there is a spiritual conflict that is happening all around us every moment of every day. And so what does that mean for how we follow Jesus and the steps we take forward? So a couple of weeks ago, we got to hear from our lead pastor, Dave Mudd, who really brought this to the forefront and asked us the question, Do you, are you even aware 
that there is a battle for your soul that is taking place, that the devil is real and he is a liar. He has been lying from the beginning and he is really, really good at what he does and he is fighting a losing battle. Because Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has won the war. And even though spiritual conflict remains, we can't have confidence to move forward because of what Jesus has done. And so that was week one. And in week two, Pastor Kerry talked about how this battle takes place. And how the enemy will work through, dis, uh, through doubt and through isolation and through division and through chaos. All stemming from his signature move, which is lies. Lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about other people. And it is through those lies that he turns us against God and turns us against one another. So in week one, we talked about the fact that this spiritual conflict exists, that this is a thing. In week two, we talked about how this battle plays out. And now here in week three, we get to talk about, so what do we do? How do we practically respond? to the reality of spiritual conflict in the world and in our own lives. And so this morning, we are going to be looking at nine verses in Scripture, nine pretty dense verses that are given to us from one of the most brilliant minds of the first century, the Apostle Paul, that are all about how we respond to the reality of spiritual conflict in the world. And we're going to take our time today to unpack this teaching from Scripture. We're going to do a deep dive into these nine verses, especially because at this point in conversations about spiritual conflict, this is where things can start to get weird. And some of you are like, oh, this is when things get weird. I thought that was two weeks ago when we started this conversation. My mistake. No. So there's plenty of room for weird in this entire conversation about spiritual warfare and spiritual conflict. But this is the point when it talks about our responsibility. What do we move forward in? Just as we have been these past couple weeks, we need to be thoughtful and look to Scripture as to what does Scripture say about how we respond to the fact that this is real, that Jesus has won the war, but the conflict still remains. So how do we practically respond to the reality of spiritual conflict in the world and in our day-to-day lives? I believe that as we work through these nine verses today, there is something that God has for all of us, and there is something God has for each of us. And because we're going to cover so much ground today, this is what I believe God is calling each and every one of us to wrap our minds around, and it's this, this idea. Our best defense against the schemes of the devil is our discipleship. Our best defense against the schemes of the devil is our discipleship, living with Jesus and like Jesus together. That's what discipleship is. It's living with Jesus and like Jesus together. And our discipleship is our best defense against the schemes of the devil. If you don't get anything else from this morning, that's what I want each and every one of us to leave this room with, to log off of the live stream with. Our best defense against the schemes of the devil is our discipleship. Now, at the same time, I believe that there is something that God has for each and every one of us. Not all of us, but something unique and personal to you based on what's going on in your life right now. And so what we're going to do at the end of our conversation this morning is I'm going to ask you, what is the one thing that God is drawing your attention to from this message that he wants to continue a conversation with you about this week? What is the one thing 
that you sense God drawing your attention to. We're going to take some time at the end of the message to write that down and continue that conversation with God throughout this week. But the thing that God has for all of us is that our best defense against the schemes of the devil is our discipleship, living with and like Jesus. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open those up or open a tab online to BibleGateway.com or wherever you get your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to want one. They are on the back shelf back there, so go ahead and grab one because we are going to walk verse by verse, line by line, through what the Apostle Paul tells us is our response to the reality of spiritual conflict. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. So that's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. So while you're turning there, a little bit of context. So we call it the book of Ephesians, but Ephesians is really a letter written by the Apostle Paul, a first century follower of Jesus, to a group of followers of Jesus living in a city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus in the Mediterranean was a cultural and religious hotspot in the ancient world. It was where kind of a center of worship for the Greek and Roman gods and really a center for occult and pagan practices. Paul finds his way to Ephesus during travels across the Mediterranean, sharing the good news of Jesus, who he is, and what he came to accomplish, and inviting people to follow Jesus. Paul ends up staying in Ephesus for two years, teaching people about Jesus, seeing people begin to follow him. And his ministry in Ephesus, powered by the Holy Spirit, is so effective. And so many people make a decision to follow Jesus that it actually changes the economic structure of the city. So much of the city's economy was driven by this worship of the Greek and Roman gods. And so you have idols and pendants and charms and spell books and divination and all of these things that drove the economy. And once people started to turn away from these other gods and turn towards Jesus, all of that economic activity dried up. And there were some people that were very upset about that. And so the people who made the statues and the charms and the idols caused a riot in the city to drive Paul out. And so he leaves Ephesus with this church behind that his heart is still with. And sometime later finds himself in prison, writing a letter back to this church, encouraging them to stay the course together as they follow Jesus. So the first half of the letter to the Ephesians is all about what God has accomplished in Jesus, about his victory, about the new life that he makes possible, about the change that he can work in the human heart. And then the second half of the letter is all about, okay, so if all of that is true, how then do we respond? How do we treat one another? How do families operate? How does employment operate? What do we do as a result of what Jesus has already done? And it's towards the end of the second half of the letter of the Ephesians that we find our passage for this morning, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. We stand our ground against spiritual evil as we live with and like Jesus together. In verses 10 to 12, we see Paul talking about the power of our relationship with Jesus against the forces of evil that come against us. Let's read together. So this is verse 10. Paul, towards the end of this letter, says, A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. 
For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is like Marvel comic book type language, right? It's like, this is epic. Wow. Paul is telling us at this very beginning of his instructions about spiritual conflict that the place we start is our relationship with God. In verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Our response to the reality of spiritual evil is grounded in our relationship with God. This is the place where we have to start because being with God and being in his presence is where we find our protection. It's where we start in our submission to him. We see this elsewhere in scripture in the book of James, chapter four, verse seven, where he says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not just resist the devil and then he'll go away, but you have to live submitted to God in a relationship with him. And it's only from there that you are able to resist the devil and he will flee. So in verse 10, Paul is already setting up this expectation that when it comes to spiritual conflict, it begins with our relationship with God. He continues, verse 11. So put on all of God's armor. We'll circle back to that in a second. So that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. The word that we have translated as strategies here could be better translated as schemes. There's a sneakiness and an insidiousness and a con that's present in this word. And Paul is making the assumption that these strategies and these schemes will come against us. It's not if the devil might trick you. It's no. These strategies and schemes are coming after you. The question is whether or not you're going to fall for them. And so by being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, we have the ability to stand strong when the schemes of the devil come against us. Verse 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. We are flesh and blood material creatures in a conflict against immaterial spiritual forces that we can't see and can't really map, wrap our minds around. And if we are left to our own devices, we have nothing with which to engage this conflict. And so right off the bat, Paul is telling us that it doesn't start with you. It starts with your relationship with God. Your best defense against the schemes of the devil is your discipleship, your relationship with God, first and foremost, and then being like God. So Paul continues in verse 13. He says, therefore, because everything that I just said is true, because spiritual conflict exists, because you can only be strong if you are in a relationship with the Lord, because you are a material creature engaged in an immaterial conflict, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Paul has used this put on language when it comes to the armor of God. He's used this terminology earlier in the book of Ephesians to talk about the change that happens when we make a decision to follow Jesus. He talks about putting off the things that used to be true of us before we follow Jesus. Put off promiscuity, put off lying, put off stealing, put off slander, and take on the new character that Jesus is giving you that's based on who he is. 
Put on purity. Put on honesty. Put on good work. Put on life-giving words. So this language of putting off and taking on, Paul has already introduced this as having to do with character qualities of Jesus that he is working within us. And so when he says, put on the armor of God, it is less of the idea of praying for a form or a kind of spiritual protection, but it is way more about asking God to help you become a kind of person who can stand firm against the schemes and the deceit of the enemy. And so this idea of putting on God's armor is about what kind of person are you becoming? And Paul is drawing on this imagery from the book of Isaiah, where God is depicted as a warrior going against, in battle, the forces of darkness and sin and evil that come against his people, and he wears body armor of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. All of these things and these character qualities that are true of God, Paul is now bringing into the New Testament and saying they can also be true of you as you live with and like Jesus. And so he continues to unpack this idea of what is this armor of God. Verse 14. So stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. The place that Paul starts in articulating this armor is with the belt of truth. Our response to spiritual conflict begins by looking to Jesus as our source of reality. So if the devil is a liar, and if he uses deceit to cause doubt and division and chaos, then every spiritual conflict begins with the question, what is really true. And not just true in the sense of what are the facts that I need to know, but what is true in the sense of who is God? Who am I? What was I created for? What does the good life look like? How am I supposed to treat other people? What is this society supposed to look like? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that we are in a cultural moment of a truth crisis where misinformation and alternative facts and realities ours have come into our national language and we are asking the question, what is really true? And as followers of Jesus, we have to acknowledge that truth and reality does not exist on either side of the political aisle. It certainly doesn't exist in our news feeds. It does not exist in our family of origin that has taught us how to live and operate in the world. The source of our reality and the place that we go to before we go anywhere else is to Jesus. Who is God? Who am I? What am I supposed to care about in this world? What does it look like to live the way that God intended me to? We look to Jesus first and foremost, and we take the truth and the reality that is true of him, and we take that on ourselves as the first piece of the armor that God gives us that allows us to stand firm in spiritual conflict. But it doesn't stop there. Paul goes on. In addition to the belt of truth, he talks about the body armor of God's righteousness. Now, this word righteousness is a churchy word that gets thrown around but not really explained. Righteousness is the character quality of being and doing what is right according to God. It is having your desires, your emotions, your thoughts, and your actions all lined up with God's vision of what is good. That is righteousness. Here's the bad news. Scripture is very clear that when it comes to righteousness, we don't have much to offer in this area. If this was our armor, it's not even like, oh, mine's broken or I have a chink. I don't have any. 
We do not have righteousness that we can bring to the table as our own form of protection, which is why we are told that we have to put on Jesus's righteousness because he is the only one who has been able to be and do God's vision of what is good, the only perfect human that ever lived. And it is by drawing on his righteousness that we are able to be protected. We do not have this, but Jesus does. And he offers to cover us with his righteousness, even as he is cultivating his righteousness within us. He is shaping us, helping us grow into this righteousness that he is covering us with. So the bad news is we have nothing to offer. The good news is that Jesus offers us his righteousness, but there's also a warning that comes in this. To try and live outside of the righteousness of Jesus is to make ourselves spiritually vulnerable. And that can happen in one of two ways. The first way is for us to try and trust in our own righteousness. Well, I'm a good person. Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm at least better than that person. We already talked about, we don't have anything to offer in this area. To step outside of the righteousness of Jesus is to expose ourselves to spiritual conflict. But the other way that this can happen, to live outside of the righteousness of Jesus is to believe that because it all depends on Jesus anyways, that there's no longer any responsibility on me. And I am free to be and do whatever I want because Jesus has that covered. To act and be not in accordance with what Jesus says is good and God's vision for what is right and true is to expose ourselves to spiritual attack. And that's not just in the things that we do. It's in the things that we entertain in our minds and it's in the things that we allow to entertain us. What impact does the righteousness of Jesus have on my Netflix queue, on my search bar, on my follows, on my reading list, on the games that I play, on the music that I listen to? If these deceptive ideas of the devil are playing to disordered desires in my soul that become normalized in a godless society, then what sort of impact should the righteousness of Jesus have on the things that I entertain and the things that I let entertain me? And are these things, which play to my disordered desires, making me spiritually vulnerable because they are taking me outside of the righteousness of Jesus? Some of you are like, well, I guess I found my one thing for the morning. Jeez, like, we're only on two of seven. So we got some, like, stay with us still. Don't check out yet. But this idea of stepping outside of the righteousness that Jesus offers us is to expose ourselves to the lies of the enemy, and he's really good at what he does. But to stay in the truth and the righteousness of Jesus is where we find spiritual protection as we become more like him. So Paul continues. He gives us the belt of truth first and foremost, the body armor of God's righteousness, and he moves on to talk about the shoes of peace in 15. For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. And I don't know about you, uh, but for those of you that may have grown up in Sunday school or in church, this is the part in the armor of God talk that I always got confused about because they'd always give you this picture of like this Roman like infantry guy, and he's so heavily armed, and like his footwear is sandals. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So verse 12, I'm going up against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world and the mighty powers in dark places in sandals? <laughs> like I'm not even comfortable wearing flip-flops. 
Like, I feel like when I put on flip-flops, I'm making a statement about the kind of day I want to have. It's like, I really hope nothing goes wrong. Because I'm not going to be able to run or, like, lift anything heavy. Like, it should be the flip-flops of faith. Like, I know it's a shield of faith, but, like, I'm making a statement, Jesus, today better be perfect. Like, so, but it's not, it's not that. Like, it's not the flip-flops, it's not the sandals of peace. What Paul has in mind here is the thick, cleated combat boots of a heavily armed Roman infantry situated on the strategic high ground of victory. So when he says, put on the shoes of peace that come from the good news, the good news that Jesus has won, the peace that God is working in the world because the battle may be still going on, but the war is already won, and we are waging conflict, not from a place of working for victory, but working from victory. And from the peace that Jesus has already accomplished, we are able to stand firm, ready for anything that comes our way because we know that the war has already been won. And so when we talk about the shoes of peace, it is standing on the high ground of Jesus's victory and the peace that he is already working in the world, reconciling all things to God through himself. Paul continues. So in addition to the shoes of peace, he says in verse 16, to hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Now again, faith is like that word righteousness where it gets kind of thrown around, but we need to unpack that. Faith, simply put, is trusting something enough to do something about it. It's acting on the trustworthiness of something and putting yourself in the care of that thing. And when Paul talks about the shield of faith, he's talking about this idea of trusting God, but with a little bit more explanation because he includes this idea of these fiery arrows. And back in Paul's day, Roman shields would be made of wood. And if you had an arrow that was on fire that stuck into that shield, the shield would catch fire, and the temptation in that moment would be to throw away the shield so that you won't get burned. But in throwing away the shield, you actually expose yourself to further attacks of the enemy. And so what the Roman infantry would do is they would take these wooden shields, they would cover them with skin and leather and dip them in water so that any fiery arrow that would hit that shield would immediately be extinguished and its power would be gone. And so Paul is saying that the shield of your faith is a committed, consistent faithfulness to God because when these arrows are hitting your shield, there will be a temptation to throw your faith away when the battle gets intense. But the shield of faith is to keep holding up that commitment to God because God is committed to you. The faithfulness of God to us is what allows us to be faithful towards him. And the shield of faith is our committed faithfulness to God over time, even when things get intense. And so we hold up the shield of faith as part of the way that we protect ourselves against spiritual conflict. And Paul continues in verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation, to refuse to accept Jesus' offer of salvation, is to leave ourselves vulnerable to spiritual attack. Now, if you, again, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with this idea of salvation as an event in time. It is the moment that you are rescued from the consequences of sin. When you go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God, 
Or you go from being an orphan to being part of God's family. You go from having no purpose and no life to having full life and full purpose. It's this moment in time where everything changes for you. But there's another way that scripture uses the word salvation that helps us understand a little bit more about what Paul is presenting to us here. Salvation is not just a moment in time, but it can also refer to a process over time. Salvation can be the moment that we are rescued from the consequences of sin, and it can also refer to the process of our healing from the effects of sin. The root word that we get salvation from is the same root word that we get the word salve from, a healing ointment that brings wholeness to wounds. And so when we talk about God's salvation that he offers, helping protect us against spiritual conflict, it makes sense that if we have not experienced this moment of salvation and made this transition from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God, that we would be vulnerable to spiritual attack because we haven't come under his protection. But here's the other thing that we have to realize is that the wounded places of our stories and of our lives and the hurts in our soul left unaddressed are spiritual attacks waiting to happen. And that's one of the reasons over the past several weeks and months we have placed an emphasis on knowing the broken places of your story and bringing them to Jesus in community because to leave these places unaddressed is to leave a spiritual liability in your life that Satan already knows about and he is just biding his time. So we come to Jesus not just to receive this moment of salvation, but also to be participating in the process of salvation, the healing of our souls and the wholeness that Jesus offers us, that abundant life that only comes from a relationship with him and the power of the Holy Spirit working inside us in community with one another. And so the helmet of salvation is what Paul invites us to take on and then it goes even farther to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now in all of the armor that Paul is kind of describing and all these characteristics of God that he's inviting us to take on, the sword is the only offensive piece of equipment. Everything else is protective. It defends us against things. But the sword is offensive. It's used for attack. And so when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, this is not simply being able to know and quote Scripture. All of us would do well to know more of Scripture and be able to bring it out as the circumstances allow, but it is not just referring to memorizing the words of a book and being able to recite them. And we go back to this uh, example in the life of Jesus where he uses scripture in a moment of temptation and spiritual conflict himself. So in the early uh, chapters of the Gospels, we have the story of Jesus being baptized and going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. And Satan comes to him with these temptations, and Jesus resists them not just because he could quote scripture, but because he knew the will of God expressed in Scripture and had committed himself to obeying it. If it was just about quoting and knowing Scripture, it could have been a very different conversation where Satan comes to Jesus and is like, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus is like, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> like that, that's, that's in the Bible. But unless you're going for like confusion... It's not, it's like, did I miss something, Jesus? I mean, does that, ha, gotcha. Like, it, that's not how that played out. 
Jesus knew the will of God expressed in Scripture and committed himself to obey it. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knew what God wanted for circumstances like that and committed himself to obeying it. Our offense is our obedience. It is knowing and doing the will of God in our lives that we have expressed to us in Scripture, that we are reminded of in our times of prayer, and that our community comes around us to call us to. Our obedience is our offense when it comes to spiritual conflict. And so Paul has listed all of these pieces of armor in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the body armor of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, but he's not done yet. And in verse 18, he tells us, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere because it is one thing to be equipped. It is another thing to be awake. A fully armed soldier who is asleep on the job might as well be completely exposed. And so Paul is calling the Ephesians and calling us today for this sense of alertness and awareness that even though the war has been won, there are still conflicts that take place. And if we are caught off guard, then we are susceptible to spiritual attacks. And so many of the greatest military defeats in history happened not because an army was ill-equipped, but because an army was unaware of the battle that was about to take place. And so Paul says, stay alert in prayer. Pray for yourself. Pray for one another. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your church. Pray for your community. Stay alert in prayer. And so Paul lines out all seven of these elements of God's armor representing his character, the character of God that he is making true of us. We live with Jesus and we are becoming like Jesus. And it's in becoming like Jesus that we find ourselves able to stand our ground when it comes to spiritual conflict to be people who are knowing the truth, living righteously, grounded in peace with an unshakable faithfulness, freed from the consequences and the power of sin, courageously knowing and doing the will of God and not growing weary. And if you hear that list, you might have the sense of, oh no, that's not me all the time. That's why this is God's arm because this is him all the time. And he offers to cover us with his righteousness, with his truth, with his peace, with his faith, with his salvation, with his alertness. And we take all of that on ourselves and he surrounds us with his character even as he is working his character in us. And we find ourselves able to stand our ground in spiritual conflict because of our connection with Jesus, because he is making us like him and we are doing it together. There's something that's implied in these nine verses that Paul doesn't come out and say, but it's something that we can't miss. The letter of the Ephesians was not written to an individual. It was not written to a specific person. It was written to a community. And what Paul has in mind when he writes this letter is not a single soldier standing up against the forces of darkness, but an army fully equipped, marching under the banner of Jesus as their commander and able to stand their ground because of the one they are standing with together. And the greatest 
defense that we have against the schemes of the enemy is to live like that, our discipleship, with Jesus and like Jesus together. Now, there are some of you in the room who may be reflecting on everything that we've talked about today and this idea of spiritual conflict and lies and everything that would come against us and hear this idea of discipleship being our best defense. And there may be a little bit of a sense of like, I'm a little underwhelmed. Like I was expecting a little bit more of like the Marvel comics, like attack, like constant, like that's the kind of stuff I had in mind. And honestly, the Ephesians probably had a little bit of that in mind as well. If you go back and read Acts 19, and I would suggest that you do because it's all of the background that goes into this letter that Paul writes. It talks about his time with the Ephesians. Ephesus was a hotbed of this occult, spellcasting, divination, worship of other gods. It was crazy. And so there may have been this expectation for there to be something closer to like a power encounter or something like, give us something that we can go to battle with. And Paul's like, yeah, uh, be like Jesus. Because to want anything more and anything more spectacular would be to fail to comprehend what Jesus has actually accomplished and the power that his life, death, and resurrection actually wields not just in our own lives but in everything, cosmically, over the universe, that he has already defeated these powers. And to want anything more would be to neglect the power of becoming like Jesus in our own lives and the power that he has already exercised through his life, death, and resurrection. It's instructive that Paul leaves his directions regarding spiritual conflict for the end of his letter. That there's so much else to talk about before he gets to this idea and everything that he says has to do with the character and the promises of God. Any teaching on how we respond to spiritual conflict that is not grounded in a dynamic and growing relationship with Jesus is empty at best and dangerous at worst. Again, there are stories in the book of Acts of people who try to exercise the authority of Jesus without being in a relationship with him. It doesn't go well. But any teaching has to start with a dynamic and growing relationship with Jesus. And there is more to be said and more conversation that we could have about what does it look like to move in the authority of Jesus when it comes to these specific strongholds that may exist in our lives or in the lives of people that we know. What does Jesus' authority and his work mean for that? But all of those are secondary conversations, important conversations, but secondary conversations to the primary conversation of our relationship with Jesus, taking on his character, and doing that together. Our best defense against the devil's schemes, is our discipleship. That is the thing that I believe God has for each or all of us today. But I also believe that over these uh, moments that we've had together, there's something that he has for each of us. And so I'm going to give us about 30, 40 seconds here. And I want you to write down, either if you're taking notes on your phone or grab a piece of paper in front of you or drop it in the chat if you're watching online, what do you sense God bringing to your attention that he wants to continue a conversation with you about this week? What is the thing that he's zeroing in on to say this is the place that I have for you to continue to press into? So take about 30, 45 seconds. Think about that, write that down, and then we'll close out our time together.
If you need to take a little bit more time to write, go ahead and take the time that you need. We're so glad that you decided to be here today, that we get to share the truth of who God is and what he offers us when it comes to this kind of complicated topic of spiritual conflict. And we're actually going to continue our conversation about spiritual conflict next week. Uh, so for those of you who have questions, anybody have questions about spiritual conflict? Um, those of you that have questions or there's something that you're curious about, we'd invite you to send those questions to hi at thehopeco.com. And we're actually going to tackle those in a Q&A next week. Um, so go ahead and send your questions or something that's making you curious about this conversation to hi at thehopeco.com. We'll sift through those this week and choose a few to respond to next week as we continue our insomnia series. I would love to pray for us now as we leave and go in the victory of Jesus to wherever he calls us to this week. Can we do that? God, thank you for the truth that we have in Scripture. Thank you for the invitation we have into a relationship with you. Thank you that you do not leave us exposed and vulnerable, but you protect us as a good father. And you make it so that we can stand firm when the enemy comes against us because we are standing firm in you. And so I pray for all of my brothers and sisters this week that they would be able to live with and like you alongside others who are supporting them and encouraging them and helping them to stand their ground. Whatever it is that we would come up against this week, we know that we can have victory because you have already won it. And so we trust you and we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here, everybody. We will see you again next week. Have a great day.